All right. All right. How are you guys doing today? Okay. Um, my name is Michael. For you guys who don't know me, uh, tomorrow we have actually a really interesting night. We have a creative night. So if you guys are interested, any of you, in uh, photography, video, or graphic design, so some of the videos or the graphics like this that we make, if you want to be a part of that whatsoever, tomorrow, 7 o'clock at the Ministry Center, all the info is on the Instagram and on our website. Check it out. Come on and uh, come on over, and, and it'll be great. We have uh, the church graphic designer. We have the church video guy and uh, a bunch of other people kind of trying to teach and develop youth, which is sweet and awesome. So you guys can be able to do this too. Uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter three. So if you guys don't have a Bible, there are ladies with Bibles that would love to uh, get you one. So you can just put your hand up and uh, they will get you a Bible. And my lady, I mean, Mark Robertson and... Uh, and we get this done. This is very, very important that we have our Bibles here today. Nothing on the screens. We are going to talk about some stuff. Uh, last week, Daniel, uh, Mr. Man here on the base, spoke about creation, which was awesome. This week, we get to follow up on uh, Genesis 3, which is what theologians call the fall. And, uh, and it's kind of an interesting topic. Because we, at the church, tend to be people about the good news. We are good news people. We are gospel people. We love Jesus. We love his message. We love what he has done in his life. Today is a bit different, though. Today is bad news day. Today is the day that we realize that so much of our world is jacked up in the worst way possible. And it's messed up and it's weird and it's horrible and we have to confront that in a very orderly manner. But it means something to us that when we look at last week what Daniel spoke about with creation, that we come into tonight to these passages in two kind of ways. We come at it looking at creation as if creation is impersonal or it's personal. It's a big bang that just flew molecules out into every other direction. It has nothing to do with us, but yet we're kind of here. Everything is kind of uh, either against us or is indifferent towards us as human beings. We're just another animal. It's impersonal. There's nothing, there's nothing close to us about the world around us. The other view, what the Bible poses, is that you were personally created just as everything around you was. It's a personal universe. It's a personal world. And however you come into this text, it means a difference as to how you are going to get out of it. And so let's read it together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and this is what it says. Now the serpent, really interesting, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This whole story, as we come into it as followers of Jesus or as people kind of, this is your first church thing or whatever, is a weird story. There is snakes. There are naked people talking back to snakes in a weird thing where God is talking. This is one of those weird passages that we have to look at. And there's a couple ways that you can think about it. One, you could believe that this is a literal story. There is a literal snake talking to two literal people. And that gives you a lot of questions and that pushes you in one direction. Or you could think about this as a story. It's someone recollecting the way that God was made. And you're not supposed, to, not supposed to as much read about the literal senses of it, but more the meaning behind it. 
You can read it whatever way. You're going to have questions on either side of this. But what I hope you begin to do is that this story is wrestling with a question that every single one of us is going to wrestle with. This question is going to wrestle with, how did evil come into place? And this is the biblical narrative that takes heed as to how this actually happened to us. And with that, I wouldn't get too big or think about things that the text doesn't give to us. We like to make up these crazy theories and ideas and just sit with it. Stop getting bogged down in the details and talk about what the meaning of it is behind everything that it's saying. In these kinds of situations, in these kinds of conversations, the best thing that we can do, sit down, shut up, and be humble. Like Kendrick, yes, okay. Oh gosh, you keep me young. Okay, uh, verse, uh, verse three. Okay, once again, look at, what, uh, look at what this serpent thing says. The serpent walks up to the lady and says, hey, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first thing that this serpent does, right? It doesn't tell us what the serpent is. doesn't tell us how it got there. It says nothing. The thing just shows up and just kind of like wiggles up and goes, what's up, players? Here's the thing. And it starts talking to someone. And the very first thing it does is it questions something God has already declared before. God has said before, chapter two, what's up guys? All right, here's a dude. All right, dude being by himself, not a good idea. Let's get him a lady friend, makes him a lady friend. Now it's a dude and a lady friend. They're hanging out, they're going, hey, you know, you wanna watch Sleepless in Seattle? It's a great movie. You know, they get the cuddles going, they're making babies, like it's a great time. Relax, holy moly. Anyways, so they're hanging out, they're doing their thing. And God says, dude, I want you to rule all of this. I want you to, you know, hang out with the cows, you know, hang out with the cheetahs, do whatever you want to do, just chill. The only thing I do not want you to do is go over to that tree over there and eat the fruit from it. That's it. You can do whatever else you want. You can go ATVing, right? You can go, you know, pull a prank on an elephant, whatever you want to do. Just don't eat that fruit from that tree. And we get all kind of, kind of, you know, complex and, and all knit up because we kind of go like, oh, why did God put the tree in the garden? Isn't that kind of just giving like your four-year-old a, a, like a gun? <laughs> that was a weird illustration. I don't know. It's, it's like, why would he make the thing that's going to cause the problem and put it in their midst? It's like, no, the question for us that we have to think about is it's not really even about the tree. It's not about the tree. It could have been anything. Don't cross the river. Don't climb the mountain. It's not about what the actual object is as much as it is about the choice. You have the choice to obey or not. And an external voice, an outside voice, goes to Eve and questions the thing that God says. And how often is that saying to us? That the very temptation hits you and I every single day. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? And we're hit with that all the time. Right now, obviously, the big thing for us is this did God really say have to do with sexuality? The biblical definition of one man, one woman together in marriage. So interesting that when you think about how the world used to be, the 60s kind of changed everything, right? Right? Woodstock, big concerts, rock and roll, 
Your grandparents are looking at each other going like, come on, somebody, right? <laughs> Horrible image. <laughs> and it created this thing called the sexual revolution. Everyone's sleeping with one another. We can do whatever we want. After that, divorce spikes way up. People no longer want to stay with one another. We find ourselves here. 2017, we don't have genders anymore. And the same question applies. An external voice coming to us and saying, did God really say? Did God really say? It's the same temptation we're going to hear over and over and over again as followers of Jesus. Are you going to stand with what God has called you to stand with? Or are you going to look the other way? Did God really say? The story continues. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, right? Speaking parcel tongue or whatever, the Harry Potter thing. Says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but eat of the fruit of the trees. Oh, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So now she did something really, really interesting. She repeats God's command, don't eat the fruits. And then she adds something on top of it. Not only do I'm not supposed to eat it, I'm also not supposed to even touch it. She adds a command over top. For God, uh, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is what the serpent said to the woman. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. And such an interesting idea that here comes this serpent, goes up to, to, to Eve and says, listen, this is kind of the, the story that I have for you, right? God said this thing, ah, I don't actually trust it. You should probably go and do your own thing. Who is God? He didn't say whatever, look, look, listen, this is the better outcome for you. If you eat this thing, you're going to be like God. She goes, okay, I'm, I'm. And there's a weird kind of thing here in this moment. Every single one of us has faced it. I actually like this one more. Even though a lie is going to get me there, I actually still want to go through with this. Because that outcome is so tempting. It's so satisfying to me. It makes me feel like I'm going to be the one who's fulfilled. We have these things all the time. These moments where we buy into a lie because we actually like the outcome even though we know it's a lie. Um, on our way, uh, we took our student lead team to Oregon, and uh, as we're driving down, we were talking about podcasts, and we were like, oh, I love podcasts. I love podcasts, too. Then there was two scrubs in the back who were like, I love podcasts, too. So we put a podcast on, and those scrubs passed out in like five minutes, and they were asleep. And uh, as we're kind of listening to this podcast, it's uh, this interesting thing where he looks back at history, and he makes us think about it in a different way. So here's a picture. And uh, this picture is a very interesting photo, okay? It comes up, it's black and, no, it might not be black and white, but it's about a dude. And it might be there, it might not. It's a guy with a dog and a police officer, which might come. It's not showing up. Okay, imagine in your mind, just close your eyes and picture a really angry dog. Picture... A really nice 
black male and a really angry white police officer, okay? This is what we're imagining, still not there. And, uh, and the police officer is holding this dog and the dog is biting at this, this, this black male. And this is, this, this is the most iconic photo of the civil rights movement. This oppressive white police officer with this angry, vicious dog biting at this black male. And people took that picture and it went all over the world. It went everywhere. Everybody took this as basically the symbol of what it was to be in the civil rights movement. Here's what it is. White supremacy, it's white oppression to this minority. And look, he's using the means, this dog is a means, as a weapon of offense. And everyone said, oh, white people, Urgh. or whatever. All over the world, this, this went viral. Every news station, everywhere around the world, this one photo, not there. And it's interesting. So this guy digs into this picture of this guy, and he asks the guy who has the dog kind of biting him. He sits him down, goes into an interview, and goes, what do you think about the fact that this photo went everywhere? And the guy says, it doesn't even make sense. You go, what do you mean? Because it doesn't make sense. I, uh, I don't know. I was walking down the street. It was a big parade. Martin Luther King Jr. was in the parade. There was a, a, a bunch of people. I turned around and I accidentally bumped into this police officer and they took a photo. I fell down, the police officer helped me up, patted me on the head and let me go. And that's the picture they took was me bumping into the police officer. And he helped me, oh, there it is, come on. And so this guy bumps into the police officer, the dog gets scared and reacts, they take a picture of it, they post it everywhere and they say, look, this is oppression, this is white supremacy, this is, this is all of these, and it's this grand narrative, this grand story that we would love to buy into until we look at the background of this picture and we realize that it's all a lie. It's a guy walking down the street, bumping into a guy like everyone else does. And that's what it is. It's buying into a story. This guy, this police officer, got death threats and letters from all over the world for helping a little boy off the street. buying into a lie because you want what comes from it. We want the change so bad, we don't, we don't care about how we get there. That's what this is. This is the entering of evil in the world. Like, I want you to understand how jacked up the world is. That we go into the news, we go to CNN or the New York Times or Facebook or Twitter or whatever the heck it is that you go for your information and it's another bombing. It's another shooting. It's people killing little girls at a pop concert. It's exploding individuals, killing other people around them. It's terrorist attack after terrorist attack after terrorist attack. And I thought about this when I, I lived in Wally, right in the middle of, you know, kind of just craziness for a while. And a soothing thing for me to go to sleep was to hear police sirens go off. It was soothing to me. And I look at that and I go, that's our cultural moment. 
is that there's so much pain and evil and brokenness that it's actually quite soothing to us. It makes us actually feel something because we don't actually care about it in any other moment. A couple of us go to uh, this, this, this place. It's like an apartment building called New Hope, and uh, they house Syrian refugees. And so we go there, us and probably five of the students here in this room, and we go and we play with them for four hours and eat food and celebrate birthdays, and it's an amazing thing. And as we're going hang out, these little boys, um, these two guys walk up to me, and I'm kind of playing around and whatever. I'm like, yo, what's up, player? What's your name? And he's like, Muhammad. And I'm like, okay, uh, what's your name? It's his twin brother. He's like, Ahmed. I'm like, classic. And so um, Muhammad and Ahmed. And so we're, we're playing with these two guys, and we're, like, running around. And we're playing basketball, and I'm trolling them. And they got, you know, water guns, and they're shooting me and stuff, and it's great. And, and we're making jokes. And so I'm like, what's your name, Muhammad? What's your name, Ahmed? They go to me. They're like, what's your name? I go, Kobe Bryant. They go, Kobe Bryant? I'm like, that's my name. They go, that's awesome. Nice to meet you, Kobe. So we go outside and we play basketball. And uh, as I'm shooting the basket, I'm like, Kobe. And they go, why are you saying your own name? I go, this is what we do in Canada. Okay, this is what we do here. It makes the ball go in better. And then no word of a lie. I made one of the guys say his own name every single time he shot, 100%. It was, it was amazing. Tiny, my boy, he can validify that story. It was amazing. Anyways. So we go and we're having this amazing time and we're chatting, we're laughing and joking around about stuff. And I'm like, what do you like about here? They're like, candy. I'm like, I love candy too. And we're like getting super hyped. These like two 10-year-old boys. And so we sit down at this table, we're drawing ice cream cones or whatever. And then uh, all of a sudden, one of them starts to try to teach me Arabic, right? So he's like, say, how are you? And I'm like, uh, okay, uh, how do you say that? And he goes, uh, marhaba. And I'm like, okay, marhaba. They go, yeah. And they get really, really amped and excited. And then I'm like, oh, dude, this is legit. And I'm like, how do you say uh, can I have some water? And they go, uh, and I go, okay, right? And they're like, yeah. And then Andy tried to do it. I don't know where Andy is. Andy sucked at it. And they laughed at him and it was awesome. And so, but I was cool. So they loved me. And so they were like, oh, dude, this guy knows how to speak Arabic. I'm like, what's up, players? So I'm like, dude, do you love Canada? They're like, we love Canada. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I love Canada too. And we're having this amazing time. And I go, well, what about Syria? Everything changed. And you saw the emotion, the joy goes away, everything goes away. Simply says, it's not a good place anymore. And it's more than those words. It's not a good place anymore. We're living in a moment where the population of Syria is 20 million people and 13 and a half million of those individuals are displaced from their homes. Six million have to leave the country and are now trying to get refugee status in Greece or Turkey or any of the countries in the surrounding area. The other seven are moved out of where their local home is and placed in another place of the country they need humanitarian need. There are killings. There is destruction constantly around us. And we do not take a minute to think about it. It's brokenness. It's death. It's destruction. It's sin. 
It's the question that we have to face every single day. Why does this exist? Why does this exist? Why does this exist? The biblical narrative is God gave someone a choice. Don't eat the fruit. And what did they do? They ate it. Eve goes and hands the fruit to Adam. He eats it as well. They realize in a moment that they're naked. They look around themselves and they're shameful. Immediately, that's the very first thing that happens to them in this broken world. Shame. They cover themselves. They run away. And one of the most haunting verses of all of the Bible is found in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The very presence that you and I are praying for, the very presence that we are hoping is going to be in this room while we worship, while we listen to the word, while we talk to one another, the very presence that we hope is within us as followers of Jesus, all of the very things that humanity was longing for, that God's presence would be here and now in this moment, that very presence that we are constantly asking for is the very thing that they're hiding from. It's brokenness and display. It's opposite of God's intention. It's running away from him. It's going in another direction. It's sin. And now we use these kind of terms all the time. And sometimes we actually don't know what they mean. It's hard for us to understand what sin even is. This is what I hope us to understand what sin is. You will only understand sin if you understand this idea called shalom. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word. And this Hebrew word is really, really important. Let me read you something from a guy named Cornelius Plantiga. This is what he says. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom. In other words, is the way things are supposed to be. Shalom is the way that things are supposed to be. And now, because of this event, because of one decision and choice, to believe God or not, we've chosen against. And now the human situation is to break shalom. The human situation is to break the way that things are supposed to be. It's to break the way that things are supposed to be. And every single one of us has this kind of idea in their mind. And you see it in different ways. It's when, I don't know, your sister steals your straightener. It's when somebody takes your mitt or whatever and you start losing your mind and your eyeballs start going out of your head and you freak out and you lose your mind. Mine's when I drive. I don't know what it is, but when I drive and, and somebody I see in my rear view all of a sudden goes to the other lane and wants to pass me, something happens to my body where I speed up. I don't know. 
It's just something within me that goes, go faster. He is not better than you. You know what I mean? What is that? What is that emotion? What is that very thing? This, this selfishness that erupts out of me when someone wants to pass me on the highway. It seems so dumb and so small. But it comes out, it's rooted out of me. It's this very thing. It's breaking the way that things are supposed to be. Oh, are we supposed to want for other people to get ahead? Man, if I'm slowing them down, let them go. No, I'm speeding right up. It's the way that people talk to one another. Man, I didn't even have a lot of issues I thought to myself until today I do this thing called an Enneagram. It's like a hardcore personality test, which basically tells you why you suck. And so I do it and I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this thing. You know, I pay 12 bucks for it. I'm like answering all these questions and, and it gives me my personality type. And the Enneagram, I'm type uh, number six. And I'm reading through this whole thing and it says, my main sin condition is angst. I'm like, angst? The heck is angst, you know? It's like an awkward word. And so I look it up into the description of the personalities and it basically says that angst is this kind of low simmering existential fear. It's like a fear that's constant and is always scared of self. It's always there. And I thought about that. And it's been like rolling in my mind this whole time that as I drive in my car, what am I thinking about? It's fearful thoughts. It's things that, that I'm afraid that might happen with myself. It's this unreliance on people. It's this non-dependence. It's this I can do it myself attitude. And those four words are the scariest words to me now that I realize. I can do it. I can do it. Those four words are my sin condition. Every single one of you has that. Every single one of you has something at the very bottom of you that runs the way that you live your life in a way that the world is not supposed to be. Sin, brokenness, and it's the very thing that you do not allow God into. You push away, you respond by running, which is exactly what they did. They hid, they were scared. And now our situation in life is posed in this idea. And I love the way that it's put in, in Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verses 9 to 10, it, uh, it says this. And I like the way that the NIV translates it. And I think it's a, a better way of reading it. It says this. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. I think for every single one of us, we feel that. We feel that. We have to. The most beautiful thing about this is that every single line shows you an emotion that you feel. It's distress, sorrow, grief, anguish, affliction, weakness. And then there's this one word that doesn't fit with all the rest of them. Groaning isn't something that you feel. 
Groaning is something that you do. It's a response. It's a reflection of what you see around you. It's the only thing you can do in a moment of desperation. It's, it's supposed to give you the image of a very heavy weight on your chest, and it's the only noise that you can get out, groaning. It's our response to the things that are around us. The brokenness in divorce. The stories that we have to hear about day after day after day after day where you think to yourself, how could that have ever happened? How could someone do that to someone else? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and this is super weird for you to hear. If someone is joining us for the first time, you're like, what the heck did I just get myself into? It's true for you too. It's for all of us. The simple exercise that you need to do is think about all the things that you've ever told someone else about how they're supposed to live life. Hey, make sure you're always on time. Make sure you know, you're, you're well-dressed for said thing. Hey, don't talk to people like that. Think of all of the standards of living in which you gave to every other person that you've talked to in your life. And ask yourself, did you meet that standard? No, you didn't. Why? Because we all suck. And it's true. It's this like bad suckiness, this propensity and human disposition to break the way that things are supposed to be. It's this moment. Uh, we went and saw a pastor speak a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about his, uh, his son. And he, the son was in the back of the car, and they're driving, and the son says, Dad, I hate Adam. And the dad goes, why? He goes, I want to punch him in the face. The dad goes, why? And he goes, because he made all the bad things come true. He made all the bad things come true. And the thing that you have to realize, that we all have to realize, is that if it wasn't them, it was going to be us. There is something about us that is constantly moved and driven to be about us, to be about what we want to have happen in the world. That because of these kinds of emotions, because of the way that we want to do things, we run away from God, we do our own thing, we say, yeah, that's what you said, but this is what I want to do. How often do we have things like that? God says, be this way. Think of yourself in this manner. Act in this way towards others. And we look at that and go, God, that's an awesome suggestion. I'm going to do my own thing. It's the constant temptation for every single one of us in the room to look at ourselves and go, my story of how the world is supposed to be is way better than what God's is. And that idea is what got us into the mess in the first place. That my story about how the world should go is better than what God's is. And every single one of us still has that problem. They're running, they hide, they're shameful. Brokenness is rampant. There's jacked up relationships. Look at how it continues. Verse 10. 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the first thing that happens is when they screw up, he goes, it was her. She did it. It wasn't even me. I thought it was a pizza, you know? Like that's what happens. Blames somebody else first. That's the very first instinct. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Put enmity between you and the woman. The world's jacked up. We feel distress, sorrow, grief, anguish, affliction, weakness. We groan at our cultural situation. We see the things around us and we go, how much worse can it honestly get? God asks them, where are you? And it's kind of that moment where you know that you screwed up. They're hiding with fig leaves. This horrible moment. And we could leave it there and be stuck in the brokenness of what it is to disobey and to push away and to fight with God and to move into our own direction because that's exactly what we want to do. Or we can do what God decides to do, which is very interesting. That in the middle of the brokenness, he decides to start a new story. And verse 15 is probably one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Tension, strife. I'm going to make you fight with one another. And between your offspring or your descendants or your seed and her offspring or her offspring and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to the serpent and says to the woman, your offspring, I'm going to make them fight. I'm going to make the retention between the two of them. One of your offspring, one of his offspring will go to battle at one point. And what's going to happen, and other translations put it this way, that the descendant of the woman, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be mutual affliction. There will be combat at one point. Both of you are going to be at odds with one another. You are going to hit one another in a tremendous way. But the descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bite back and bruise the heel. Mutual pain. But right there, right after brokenness, right after pain, God gives us the vision of a new story. 
This is, and if you want to be smart to all of your Christian friends, is what scholars call the proto-euangelion. Proto, like prototype, the first of something. And the euangelion is the gospel. It's the very first time the gospel is ever mentioned in all of the Bible. One will come to defeat the serpent in a way that you could never possibly imagine. And the story stacks up in a really interesting way. The beginning in Genesis 1, God creates and he says, let there be light. In the beginning, God creates by saying with his words. What's the very thing that the serpent attacks? When the serpent goes to the woman, he says, did he really say? Did God really say? God creates with the word. The serpent attacks the word. God starts a new story. And how does he reclaim and save the world? John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It shows you this whole different image of the very word that the serpent tried to attack is the very thing that God in the end uses to save everyone and anyone who is willing to accept and understand that there is brokenness in their life. The word is what gives life. The word is the very thing that created. The word was the very thing that was attacked. And look at how now the word is explained at the end of the story when this grand vision of what God casted in Genesis 3 is found in John 1. And it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, for him was fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word created all things. The word was attacked and the word was the very thing that came back to save. Listen, you today are sitting in this room not because of your own efforts, not because of what you did, not because you are so awesome at life. Not because you have this tendency to make everything better around you. No, because someone gave everything for you. 
That this gospel, the story of Jesus in all of creation is come to its fulfillment and the same choice at the beginning that has gone the wrong way and created the problems for us all is the same choice given to every single one of us. It's almost as if our situation for every person in this room is us standing in the garden and God's asking the same way, will you trust me or will you not? Will you trust me or will you not? That the gospel is alive and well within our community. But not out there. In the middle of brokenness, in the middle of sin, in the middle of disaster, God creates a vision of making all things new. And he has through the word, Jesus Christ. The gospel the gospel is life. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for the rich. It's for the, the poor. It's for the affluent. It's for the malice. It's for the homeless. It's for those who are image obsessed. It's for those who are insecure. It's for those who have been the bully and are bullied. It's for the baker, for the cage fighter, for the lawyer, for the construction worker. It's for the black community. It's for the Asian community. It's for those in the Middle East and everyone around the world. The gospel is for the ones in your home, for the ones down the streets. It's for the straight person and the gay person. The gospel is alive. The gospel is open. And the gospel is waiting for you to proclaim it. In the middle of brokenness, God creates a vision of what is going to be. When everything is put to rights through Jesus, will you do the same? In the middle of the groaning, of the distress, the sorrow, the anguish, the affliction, the weakness of everyday life for us, Are we the kinds of people who sit and whine about our problems? Or do we follow God's steps and create a vision for everyone around us about what wholeness could look like through the gospel? But in God's mind, brokenness, sin, the idea and the propensity to break the way that things should be is the opportunity to put things back to how things should be. And the means into which he wants to do that very thing is you, is your words, is your reliance on Jesus and your proclamation of the name above all names. Life within brokenness 
is the call that you have. Sin is not the end of the story. Life and life to the full is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that as we just sit in the word and we see what it is that you have called us to, to look at ourselves and our own sin condition, the brokenness of humanity around us. But even at the lowest of lows, you created opportunity and we could see it that way. How do we be the kinds of people in, in the lowest of lows create opportunity? Create a vision of life. Be so jacked up and excited about what it means to follow Jesus that we would just proclaim it to everyone that we know. The Father, you are great. You are loving. You are amazing. We thank you for Jesus and his actions on the cross to redeem us from ourselves, from our selfish tendencies and our pride from our angst, from our fear, our lack of trust, our I can do it mentality, and that you would make much of us and through us, through our efforts. So Father, we thank you, we love you. Jesus, I wanna pray, amen.